0: Thank you, worship team. And thank you, church family, for sharing scripture, and, and uh, that, was, that was rich. That is rich. I don't know about you, but there's times as you go through life, and as, as a Christian, and uh, you consider different times and circumstances that you need to exercise faith and and you wrestle with a couple things. One is you're not sure if you have enough, or if it's misplaced, or I think sometimes we just wonder what it would look like to exercise faith in a certain scenario. Sometimes maybe through life, um, you're like, I'm not sure how to pray for this. I'm not sure what's the balance between prayer, believing in God, and maybe demanding things of God, or um, can can I actually pray? And almost demand of God to answer in that sense. Kind of like that prosperity. If I, faith, will, if I pray, will it happen if I have enough faith? And so sometimes we kind of wrestle with what, what does that look like to really pray after God's will. Sometimes through our Christian life we, we come across circumstances where we're either in a workplace or at school or talking with our neighbor and the thought goes through our mind, you know, I should really say something here about Jesus or I should really stand up for God somehow. But I'm not quite sure how to do that. Or maybe in your Christian journey, you've kind of wrestled with and maybe engaged in conversations with people about God's judgment. Is it right? Is it fair? Like, how, do I, how do I handle that one? Um, how should I view God's judgment? So maybe that, those questions have gone through your mind. Maybe they're deeply personal things like, I feel like I'm slipping into depression What do I do? How do I get out of this gray slush of every single day? How do I do that? You see, the composite of our spiritual journey includes a lot of these wrestling matches, a lot of these questions, a lot of these experiences. And as we consider, what does it look like to walk through some of these, you're going to like Elijah. Because all those scenarios, he faced. He gives us a picture of what it looks like to walk through depression. He gives us a picture of what it looks like to wrestle with God's judgment. He gives us a picture of what it looks like to stand in faith. He gives us a picture of what it looks like to connect in prayer. He gives us a picture of how to stand up for God when surrounded by an antagonistic culture. That's Elijah. No wonder we want to look at his life. No wonder God left this biographical picture portrait In the scriptures, of all the prophets who blazed across ancient Israel's history, it seems none burned as brightly as Elijah. Few people were more significant to or even feared in ancient Jews than those who stood before the people as God's prophets. And boy, when they spoke, people listened. It's almost as if the prophets' words just drilled into people's hearts. And through their message, while it wasn't always appreciated, it couldn't be ignored. No one could deny that Elijah was probably one of the greatest prophets. He was a man of both heroism and humility. He was God's lightning during the dark days under Ahab. And Jezebel, for that matter. He appeared on the scene suddenly, as we're going to see here this morning. And then he leaves suddenly. It's like God said, here, i got a purpose for you. Show up. Okay, I'm done. You're you're done. And takes them right out. But in no way should we view Elijah as some kind of superman who flew in, made things right, and left, who no one knew was Clark Kent right among them. We we can't think that way because the book of James tells us Elijah was a man just like us. I mean, all these extraordinary things we're going to look at According to James, we could have done if we were in this situation and God chose to use us, which is going to be amazing as we go through this. But he was a man just like us. And yet as we read about it, we're like, wow, God really used him. How how did God use a man so great? And could God actually use me in great ways is a question. Elijah is going to shout to us, yes. And so let's listen and learn from Elijah's life. I appreciated these words from Matthew Henry as he wrote about Elijah. He says, Never was Israel so blessed with a good prophet as when it was so plagued with a bad king. Never was a king so bold to sin as Ahab and never was a prophet so bold to reprove and threaten as Elijah. He only of all the prophets had the honor of Enoch, the first prophet, to be translated that he should not see death and the honor of Moses, the great prophet, to attend our Savior in his transfiguration. Other prophets prophesied and wrote. He prophesied and acted, but wrote nothing. But his actions cast more luster on his name than their writings did on theirs. So who was Elijah and what set him apart? What lessons can we learn from his life? Well, follow along. We're going to mean First Kings this morning. Chapter sixteen verse twenty nine through chapter seventeen verse one. Now you're gonna mention some kings' names in here. Stick with it, because it's really important to understand the backdrop of Elijah. Chapter sixteen, verse twenty nine. Now Ahab, the son of Amri became king over Israel in the thirty-eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, and Ahab, son of Amri, reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty two years. And Ahab, the son of Amari, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heal, the Bethelite, built Jericho. He had, he had laid its foundations with the loss of Abram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Sagam, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, son of Nun. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. A person's legacy and character is forged in the times in which they live. And few times were darker than Israel's history than the one against which Elijah lived. Generally, as we look at these times, we, we're introduced to this king of Israel, Ahab. Saul, David, Solomon, each in their turn, ruled this unified Hebrew nation for 100 years. But when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, decided with a real uh, dead moment mentally, said, I got an idea, I'm going to tax these people heavily, and he started a revolt, and this unified nation became split. Now, I remember reading through the Old Testament a lot, and I would get really confused, because I'd come to verses like chapter 16, here in 1 Kings, verse 29, and I read, now Ahab the son of Amri became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. Wait a minute. King of Israel, king of Judah. Who's king? And it would really... Mess with me, because I would get really confused. I'm probably not alone. And so I thought, this is a good time to explain, and it will help clarify a little bit as you read verses like that. King of Israel, king of Judah, well, what's that about? Well, as I said, under uh, David, Solomon, uh, and Saul, it was a unified nation, but as Rehoboam stepped into things, there was that split. It became the northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. They'd split from the unified nation. And so we have both. The northern people were known as Israel. And we read primarily about these kings of Israel, First and 2 Kings. Now the southern kingdom was known as Judah. Primarily spoken of in 2 Chronicles. The northern people, if we were to follow this distinction through Scripture... The normal people, or the northern people, the northern people lasted about 200 years before they were taken captive by the Assyrians. Judah went went for about 350 years before they were taken by the Babylonians. And so, as you read through 1st and 2nd Kings and Chronicles, make that distinction in your mind. You got 19 kings of Israel taken captive by the Assyrians, all of these kings were evil. So as you think about the northern kingdom, Israel, think evil. Every single one of the kings. The southern kingdom, Judah, they were taken by the Babylonians of captivity. They also had 19 kings. At least there were a couple good apples in there who provided some sense of stability. But as we look, we're looking at one of the kings of Israel. Now the period between the split and the Babylonian captivity is known as the time of the kings. Again, some kings were good, but most were evil, at least in the southern kingdom, or northern kingdom. A brief survey of the northern kings leading up to Elijah's time will help us see what Elijah was up against. So we're going to do a quick overview of these kings, because as we read this text, you picked it up. Verse 30, Ahab, the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Well, all who were before him. Well, Jeroboam, we introduced, was the first king of Israel. We're introduced to him in 1 Kings 13. And when, while Rehoboam continued to rule Judah, the southern kingdom, Jeroboam became the first king of the northern kingdom. So you got the Boam brothers. <laughs> it's one way to remember them, although they weren't brothers, but they both served at the same time. Jeroboam was an evil man, and he led people astray into idolatry. And his legacy, as you read about his life, is one of murder, deception, and perversion, which eventually ran through the lines of all the kings. Then we're introduced to Nadab. Let's read a little bit about him. 1 Kings 15. We're going to bounce here a couple chapters. Don't worry, walk through here 1 Kings 15, 16, up to 17. A little bit about Nadab. Let's go 1 Kings, let's go chapter 15, 25 to 28. Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel. We're in the northern kingdom right now. In the second year of Asa, king of Judah, southern kingdom, and he reigned over Israel two years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. Then Basha, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him, and Basha struck him down at Gibeathon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibeathon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place." Nadab, son of Jeroboam, fanned the flames of idolatry his father had begun. Nadab was murdered after two years as king. That's where Basha entered the picture, which we just read. If you go to verse 33 through 34, that same chapter, we get a little bit more insight into this Basha. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, became king over Israel at Tirzah, And reigned 24 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and his sin, which he made Israel sin. By the way, as we go through these kings, dads, I hope you take note that what you do impacts the next generation. It's not by accident that the sons of these kings became began to walk in evil. Because they looked at Daddy, and that's what Daddy was doing. And so it matters what we do, man. There's just a whole separate sermon, but I thought I'd throw it in there. Free. So Basha, not a good guy, 24-year reign of evil. Well, as we go to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 8 and 9, we began to see some things continue to change. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, so you got this evil king, Basha, he's got a son named Elah, he became king over Israel at Tirzah and reigned two years. Verse 9, And his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. Now, as we read about this, Elah, while in a drunken stupor, the son of Basha was assassinated by his servant Zimri. So Zimri gets Elah hammered and then takes him out in generic terms. Now, if we go to verse 12 through 13, we get a little more information. Chapter 16. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha according to the word of the Lord which he spoke against Baasha through Jehu the prophet. Jehu the prophet said this is what's going to happen and it did. For all the sins of Baasha and, and the sins of Elah his son which they sinned and which they made Israel sin provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. So Zimri having murdered the king and all his household is next on Israel's throne. And that's what I just read follows in verse 15 through 16 now the people although Zimri had only uh, served as king for one week pretty much the people beg Amri this commander of the army to be king they don't like the fact Zimri stepped in they say hey Amri we, we could use a king this guy's he's a loser and so they beg Amri to step in Amri complies but if we read in verse 17 through 18, look at the response that Amri and all Israel with him went up to Gibbethon. they besieged Terzon, and it came about when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went to the citadel the king's house, burned the king's house over him with fire, and died. So people beg Amri, hey, we want you as king. Amri goes, basically besiege Zimri. Zimri says, this ain't going to work, and commit suicide. This line of kings is messed up. It's not done. Chapter sixteen, verse twenty-one through twenty-two. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half the people followed Tibni the son of Ginath to make him king. The other half followed Amri. Okay, here we got a, a once again the people can't make up their mind and they're wrestling over who should be king. Verse twenty-two. But the people who followed Amri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni the son of Ganath, and Tibni died, and Amri became king. So finally, after throwing one king and overpowering another, Amri gets his chance. Now he did, to fairness, bring a small sense of stability to Israel, but he never sought God. He just continued to perpetuate evil and antagonism towards God and his people. So for more than half a century, we read of these kings of Israel, we read of bloodshed, idolatry. Immorality, conspiracy, murder. And it permeated Israel's society because it started at top with these kings. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite. So Elijah steps in. Now remember this dark history. And all of a sudden, specifically in this time, we're introduced to Ahab. As we read in chapter 16, verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Amre, did evil in the sight of the Lord, how much more than all who were before him. Okay, this king is messed up. I mean, talk about antagonistic towards God. He waved his finger in God's face. Now, he has a distinction different than all these other kings. Out of all these other kings, only Ahab's wife is mentioned. And for good reason. She was actually the one running things. As we look at this text, we're introduced to her. As we get down a little bit less of uh, uh, verse 31, came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him, Ahab, to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that he married Jezebel. Now, you thought Ahab was bad. Along comes Jezebel. Matter of fact, if you go to Revelation, she's totally Equated with evil and wickedness. You can almost say that's what her name meant. Her god was Baal. She was a worshiper of Baal. And Baal represented the spiritual enemy who threatened to steal the souls of the people from Yahweh, the one true God. Now, we should mention here what sort of god was Baal. Well, the Canaanites looked at Baal as a fertility god as well as a storm god in charge of rain, wind, and clouds, which would basically definitely impact the fertility of crops. I, I came across an archaeological ancient statue I looked at, and it showed Baal gripping a lightning bolt, ready to hurl it. And so they had a great, obviously, great view of Baal. Degrading sexual acts were one way his followers worshipped him. Now, Old Testament scholar Gene Rice added this insight. Baal was thought to be indispensable to the vitality in nature. Fertility was understood as a divine force released by sexual union between Baal and his girlfriend, I say his girlfriend, attendant in the Old Testament, Ashura. So when you're introduced to Ashura, she's often coupled with Baal because this couple were gods of fertility. That's why they were worshipped. This divine couple could be activated from the human realm by cult prostitution. Instead, it's messed up people. The delusion and degradation Ahab and Jezebel brought upon Israel form this dark backdrop in which Elijah shows up. But God loves his people, and he wants to rescue them. In order to show beyond the doubt that the true God is Lord over all, He would perform miracles through Elijah's ministry geared to undermine every one of Baal's so-called powers. We're going to see that in the weeks ahead. Elijah was God's representative in his time to be a vessel through which God would speak and demonstrate his glory and his power. God looked for a special man through these difficult times. God looked for a man who was available and surrendered that he could use during these dark days. And he found one in Elijah. What do we know about this person, Elijah? Well, we're told in chapter 17, one, he's a Tishbite, that might mean nothing to you, and it probably doesn't because they can't find where this city was. It was so, all they know, it was in Gilead, east of the Jordan. They don't know where this town was. It's perceived to be such a hick town that you actually had to move towards the city to hunt. That's how far out this town was, way out there, rugged terrain. It's a no-name place. It's a place probably you didn't want others to know you were from because they're like, where's that? Qualifications, his qualifications to be used of God, none. He didn't really have any. He didn't bring really anything to the table. He was an ordinary, special man because he loved God enough to be available to him. So this Tishbite, from an area unknown, but is known for its ruggedness, rocky mountains, thickly wooded hills, a solitary place, where many, as we read in the Bible, such as Jacob and David, sought refuge in that, actually that area. Gilead's ruggedness is reflected, really, I think, in Elijah's character. Tough, unpolished, and humble. It really reflects Elijah well. Elijah's name actually summarizes his ministry. It summarizes his focus. It summarizes his authority, his message. His name means, my God is Yahweh. His name states really the theme of his ministry. In an age of easy tolerance and open assimilation to Canaanite religion, Elijah asserts his personal determination to obey the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me with just his name just his name shouted that it's not easy to bring the northern kingdom to a like passion that's for sure but Elijah's ministry sought to do that what was his style well we see it in verse one he doesn't even say hello (laughs) as the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word we're gonna look at that part next week but his style is he just comes up throws a gauntlet down to Ahab and Jezebel and he says my God says this i.e. I don't really care what your God say my God Yahweh says this he's authoritative he's to the point his words show him to be passionate zealous dedicated to God and he stood in the gap on behalf of God and his people and made the voice of the Lord heard. It strikes me we need more Elijahs today. We need to follow his example. It seems so few stand as Elijah did. Learn, it's easy to learn the way of the chameleon. To blend ourselves in to the scenery of the times. And often our tolerance and compromise make us ineffective as Christ lights in our dark world. But we can learn like Elijah, to shine in the darkness in our lights, in, or in our times, and in our places, with God's message of righteousness and love. Well, some personal applications, there's two. There's more, but there's two we're going to look at. Elijah's life, to me, we're going to look, each message as we go through this is, is in and of itself a lesson but I think there's two undermining things that would be good for us to grasp as we move through this series. One, God looks for courageous people in difficult times. That's what he looks for. Position, power, connections, none are criteria for God's choosing a servant. Rather, he looks for surrendered people who have the courage to stand up for him. I mean, study history. If you study the people who impacted history the greatest... One of the common denominators, they had guts. They had guts to stand up to evil and to sin and to the culture around them, just like Elijah. To stand up against the backdrop of corrupt times, we need to learn from Elijah. Are you a ready instrument? Could God find you willing and courageous to stand up for him? But there's a second point, I think, is really, really incredibly important. God found Elijah not among a royal family, nor among anyone even near Ahab, but in a rugged and remote area, the terrain of Gilead. In other words, God used Elijah just as he was. He just wasn't some royal great celebrity. God used Elijah just because he was authentically Elijah, He just was Elijah. He didn't try to be anything else. as we look through this, we'll see that as study. And God used him in amazing ways. God wants to use you just as you are, just as He created you to be. your personality, your gifts, your temperament. He just wants to use you. I'm a just going to say this only because uh, it's it's such a deep conviction. I just finished a book. It's going to be released in about a month. And, And the book's focus is on that. A deep conviction I have and have carried for some time is that God uses normal people in extraordinary ways. And I think Elijah just shouts this to us. And this is so encouraging to me. Because God doesn't ask us to be what we're not. He just says, make yourself available. Surrender to me. And buckle up, because this is going to be a fun journey. And that's what we read about in Elijah's life. God just wants to use you as you are. Be encouraged by that. There's so much to learn from Elijah's life. And so in these weeks ahead, we're going to journey together over these next few months and learn the lessons from Elijah's life. Let's pray. Lord, I, I know from reading throughout Elijah's life, the amazing things you've done. And Lord, what really strikes me this morning, and probably more than just me, is the context in which you used him. Wicked times. Culture incredibly messed up. Filled with idolatry. Lord, we need only to turn on the news to see a culture messed up. Pursuing wickedness. Compromise in idolatry. It's not hard to relate to the times in which Elijah stepped into his ministry. God, we need to learn the lessons through Elijah's life. So relevant to our times. So relevant to our lives. And so God, this morning, help us to recognize you use courageous, normal people Might you, Holy Spirit, develop in us backbone a spiritual courage to stand up for you in a world that seemingly is growing in its antagonism towards you. Help us to know deep down in our spirit you want to and will use us when we surrender to you. Might that happen. And might our communities change because people in this room Just said, yes, God, I'm available. And I believe that will happen. And so might it for your glory and your praise. Amen.